This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. I'm Lindsay Cosberg, and I'm Vice President for External Affairs at the RAND Corporation, and it is my pleasure to introduce our panelists who share a commitment to helping those with serious mental illness. Um, You have their biographies in your programs, and as they get seated, I'll tell you a little bit about each of them. Ron Schreiber directs client peer relations at the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. He is a veteran advocate of those with serious mental illnesses, and I think we'll share some of his personal experiences with you as well. Ted Sapp, you met earlier, is the executive director of the Nathaniel Anthony Ayers Foundation for the Artistically Gifted Mentally Ill. They support arts programs and mental health organizations and the arts organizations that serve mentally ill populations. Alex Young, Alexander Young, uh, is a psychiatrist and director of the Health Services Unit of the Department of Veterans Affairs Desert Pacific Mental Illness Research, Education, and Clinical Center in Los Angeles. In his spare time, he is a professor at UCLA and an adjunct member of the RAND research staff. Steve Lopez is the Los Angeles Times columnist whose journalism brought him to Nathaniel and also to the soloist, A Lost Dream, An Unlikely Friendship, and The Redemptive Power of Music, the book and motion picture that chronicled Nathaniel's mental health struggles and his extraordinary gift. Our moderator tonight is no less than Paul Kogel, Associate Director of Rand Health and his 25-year research career as a medical and urban anthropologist has focused on the effect of healthcare systems on the adaptation of vulnerable populations, including very prominently individuals who are homeless. So Paul, I abdicate the microphone to you and to our panelists, and I thank you. Thanks, Lindsay, and uh, thank all of you for being here tonight. For me, it, it really is a, a privilege to be able to moderate a panel as distinguished as this one and on a topic as, as important as the one that, that we're dealing with, a topic that, that really touches so many people's lives. One in 17 Americans, about 6% of the population overall, um, has diagnoses of serious mental illness, illnesses like schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder, uh, major depressive disorder. These are, are, are disorders that strike people in the, in, in the prime of life and, and that can often be um, very, very disabling. They affect the people themselves. They affect um, their family members. And it's an issue that all of us are right to be concerned about. Now, not terribly long ago, even after the era of institutionalization had ended, um, the focus on trying to treat serious mental illness was really one of trying to manage symptoms and to accept and and maybe even expect that people who were diagnosed were going to be we're going to have to lead very, very constrained lives. This has changed. The concept of recovery has um, emerged as as kind of a a signpost for a new way of approaching the management of of serious mental illness. 
um, and is meant to, to, to fundamentally um, change the way we think about the goals of treatment and about the role that people who have been diagnosed with serious mental illness themselves should be playing um, in their treatment. Managing symptoms is not viewed as being enough any longer. The real issues are how can people lead meaningful lives? How can they achieve their potential? How can they be accepted by communities? And and perhaps most importantly, how can they have their own voice and their own say in the decisions that affect them? That's Those are the kinds of issues that we're going to be talking about tonight. Now, before we start, I just want to put in a shameless plug for the UCLA RAND Research Center that, uh, that Ron and Alex um, and I do a lot of um, our work within. This center uh, is called the Partnered Center uh, on Quality Mental Health Care. It's funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. And the word partnered is very, very key um, to what we do. Um, the center is a collection of researchers from a variety of different um, disciplines, um, as well as all of the stakeholders who care about the issue of serious mental illness. Um, policymakers, providers, payers, uh, community members, and consumers of mental health services. And the beauty of this center is that all of these people set the research agenda together and then work collaboratively to carry out and disseminate um, that research. And the collaborative nature of what goes on in the center, I think, really captures um, the fundamental principles that define the the recovery movement uh, itself. So with that, I'm going to turn to the panel, and I'd like to start with Ron, not only because he's closest to me. In so many ways. In more than women. That's right. <laughs> um, Ron, I'm turning to Ron first because Ron brings a really, really unique perspective to this issue, a perspective um, as uh, someone who's been a consumer of mental health services, as a very um, successful and prominent activist um, for consumer issues, and as someone who's working within the mental health system um, now to try to um, affect the necessary changes. So, Ron, uh, what I really want to ask you is what you see as the key changes that have taken place over the last um, 15 years or so? Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, I'm not saying that just because we're very close. Um, I guess that one of the key things is that there's an attempt, there's uh, an openness about voluntary services. Um, because contrary to what people have thought is that if you force somebody into treatment, they're going to be resistant. And this is not just for people that are diagnosed with mental illness. There wouldn't be this saying, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You don't have to be diagnosed. What people want are responsive treatments. 
but they want not just treatments, mental health per se, they want things like anybody else, which is beginning to be acknowledged that we're human beings. We're not a mass of symptomatology. I've had numerous diagnoses, including paranoid schizophrenia, bipolar uh, disorder, and even schizoaffective excited type, because I figure after a while, if I was going to be schizoaffective, I might as well be excited about it. <laughs> and this was even an issue, is that psychiatry is not always an exact science about ascertaining what your condition is. Even though they say it's biochemical, there's no blood test. I'm not going to go into a, either a subtle or a diatribe against the medical model, but it we were tended to be pathologized. That's why you're the schizophrenic. We have what we call people-first language. People with schizophrenia diagnosed, or even a person with quadriplegia, because that just reduces you down to your disability. There has been a move more towards strength-based rather than just deficits, looking what a person can do and not what a person cannot do. But you ha- I have to admit that we're dealing with very cultural-bound belief systems that affect the mental health system between the dichotomy between I am the helper and you're the helped. Instead of having a reaching across, there's more of a reaching down, and that makes you feel one down. The basic thing is about being treated as a human being. And while there is more attempt to listen to people, the status quo is still dominated instead by peer groups where we often feel more comfortable by professional, and some of my best friends are mental health professionals, as you well know. <laughs> um, and sometimes we may have stakeholder groups, but still the dominant power remains with professional, and re- it reminds me of what Frederick the Great said, my people and I have an agreement we're both very pleased with, they say whatever they please, and I do whatever I please. <laughs> So, I mean, like, we really want a partnership, but it's hard to really get a partnership when people, by their, uh, when in the common culture, which pervades the mental health system, is if you want to say somebody cannot do a job, what do you say? It's like turning the asylum over to the inmates. And so we need to be included into the family of humankind, just like other dispossessed people, whether they were people of color, gay people, people with other disabilities, that we too are human beings and that we can and do speak for ourselves. Thanks, Ron. So, Alex, let me ask you the same question. You come at this from a somewhat different perspective, the perspective uh, of a psychiatrist who both provides services um, and who tries to um, improve services through research. How, How... How would you characterize the major changes that have taken place? Uh, Well, thanks, Paul. It's it's been a remarkable 15 years, really. I mean, we've seen, um, I remember back when I was a resident and pretty much, you know, in training, it was maybe 15, 20 years ago, and, you know, all we had to use with people with serious mental illness were medications that were pretty unpleasant, um, pretty difficult to prescribe, pretty unpleasant to take. And we didn't have a lot in the way of rehabilitation or understanding of what else to do to help people function better or even understand why people weren't functioning or were having trouble with the quality of their life. And really over the past 15 years, the possibility, uh, the possibilities for people with mental illness have really, uh, it's remarkable change. I mean, we have treatments now in a whole range of treatments. We have medications um, that are easy to take 
easy to prescribe. We have many options. We have medications that work better than the ones that we had before. Um, we also have a, a, a range of rehabilitation treatments now that are really um, that have only become clear over the past 10 or 15 years, treatments such as supported employment that allow up to half of people with serious mental illness to return to competitive jobs. Um, we have uh, family interventions that allow families to take a meaningful role in their treatment. We have uh, consumer-led interventions. We have a re- there's a remarkable um, consumer uh, client movement in the country, really with... Uh, very large number of bright, motivated people that have been very influential in helping to improve services. Um, so we've really seen a tremendous amount. And as far as the, I think there's been an increasing understanding of the biology of the illnesses. And so we really understand, I think we have an increasing sense of um, why it is that people have a hard time functioning. So for instance, even though we have medications and they, they help with uh, symptoms, such as to reduce psychotic symptoms or to reduce manic symptoms, and that helps with uh, folks behaviorally so they can get along. It's easy for them not to get into trouble. We've also learned that um, there's, uh, there are cognitive issues um, that are unrelated to those symptoms, and those are the cognitive issues that predominantly affect people's ability to function um, uh, socially, interpersonally, in the workplace. And what's become clear is that there are folks who are, can have very severe symptoms and do very well function very well in high-level jobs, um, be, you know, professors, universities, physicians, so forth. And th- then there are also folks who are have no symptoms at all and can't function without extensive rehabilitation. And so we've started to really understand what some of the contributions are um, to day-to-day functioning and what some of the limitations of our medications are. I, I would say the possibilities are remarkable. The reality um, is somewhat better, but I guess where I get interested in the research is that we know that when we put together a package of things and make give people options to choose from and educate them about what they can choose from, what their options are, um, that uh, improvement and is, can be remarkable and is remarkable in many people. But I also know that most people with serious mental illness don't receive anything like that in the country today. Um, uh, they uh, receive at most maybe some medication or a brief visit with a psychiatrist. They don't have access to these other treatments that I've talked about. Um, and uh, so the result is that the, um, the possibility is very good. So when I have people who come to me with sort of unlimited financial resources, for example, I can almost guarantee them that they're going to do really well. But that's, of course, rare. So I have, right. you know, uh, it, most people have, they have Medicaid, perhaps, or they re- rely on uh, insurance that's very limited. And so uh, we really, and that's where my research is focused, is to try and understand how we can take what we know and take the possibility and make it more real uh, for more people, how we can get clinicians to engage in the treatments that we know um, work, um, and how we can bring uh, consumers and clinicians and systems together to really do a better job, a better job of really caring and engaging with people. Um, And, you know, that's sort of, so that's what we've been, you know, the group that I lead has been focused on is really how do we bring, how we make this possibility a reality in the systems that people actually use and actually have access to. Thanks, Alex. That's great. So, Steve, you bring yet a third perspective. That's kind of the perspective of somebody who cares deeply for somebody who's got serious (coughs) mental illness. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, your experiences with with Nathaniel and what that has uh, taught you about how serious mental illness is being dealt with. 
Well, I'm always intimidated to be in the company of uh, experts, people who, are, who know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, and I have no, no clinical training. I have only my experience. And um, it began six years ago, um, almost exactly six years ago, when I spotted Mr. Ayers playing a violin that was missing two strings. And it took a while to get to know him. It's a breakthrough, but it was, he was such a, uh, it was such a powerful image that I, um, is that me? I don't know if that's me or not. It, it was such a powerful image that I wanted to get to know more, and I thought uh, there, there must be a column here. Um, Mr. Ayers, as you know, was standing um, down near Pershing Square, uh, near the Beethoven statue. Um, and he said he played there for inspiration. And he was uh, next to a shopping cart that contained all of his belongings. And it said on the side of it, um, Little Walt Disney Concert Hall. <laughs> and, um, we were, thank you, we were um, just several blocks from the big Walt Disney Concert Hall. And uh, I thought that that was powerful too. When I started to uh, get to know him a little bit and um, first wrote about him, um, I naively and foolishly thought, as columnists uh, sometimes do, that they've got uh, the answers, that uh, I was going to figure out what was wrong with him and fix him. And um, it's embarrassing to look back on that and to realize how ignorant I was of um, the, the reality that he was dealing with. Um, and, um, you know, I found out in a hurry that um, people who are professionals, trained um, clinically, um, have different ideas about what to do to help somebody like that. And um, I was torn. I was looking for a quick way to help him and convinced that there must be one. Um, and I remember visiting um, LAMP, uh, or rather not LAMP, but uh, the village in Long Beach, um, which uses the recovery model. It's not so much about a diagnosis, as Ron says. It's, hey, who are you and how are you doing? And what can you tell us about yourself? And if there's a prescription pad, it's you know, wraparound services and um, treating the whole person and respecting the whole person. And I thought, well, maybe that's the way to go. And when I wrote that column, I heard from people in the profession, in the field, who said, um, well, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but I can't get any microphone. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I, I wrote that column um, and heard from somebody saying, you are such a fool if you think that this person can be helped without medication. Um, this is somebody who will have problems forever and without some serious meds and intervention, and it may involve involuntary treatment, meaning he's going to have to be maybe cuffed and carted away. He's, your friend is never going to get any help. <clears throat> and I didn't know what to make of any of this. And I even thought for a while um, that maybe that was the thing to do. I could remember a point when I was thinking of uh, calling the police and lying and saying um, that, uh, you know, he had, he had struck me um, because I was giving up hope, I was frustrated, and I was meeting other people, though. I remember very early on, I was at Metropolitan State Hospital, and I met, I heard Ron speak. And here's Ron coming from the other end of the spectrum, and I, I, I did not know what to do. Um, I remember being on a bus with Daryl Steinberg, the uh, current um, Senate pro tem, um, who was the godfather, some say, of Prop 63, the Mental Health Services Act. 
And uh, we were on a bus tour visiting mental health agencies. And um, <clears throat> I said to him, Daryl, um, I understand that the village is the model for Prop 63 and that LAMP is pretty much like the village. And they're working with um, my friend, and I don't see any improvement. Um, is this what we're going to have more of throughout the state? Because I don't think it works. And he said, how do we know what works? We haven't tried anything. In decades, we have not provided the services that so many thousands of people need. Can we please do that before we start talking about the law and lowering the standards for involuntary treatment? And I trusted Daryl, and I trusted the people at LAMP, and I decided to sit back, lay back, and um, there was a, a psychiatrist at the village who told me, Steve, the best thing you can do is don't try to be his doctor. Don't try to fix him. Don't try to cure him. He's got what he needs from you, and it's an important thing to have in his recovery if it's ever to happen. He has a friend. Just be his friend. And so that's five and a half years ago. All I've tried to do since then is be his friend. I've tried to be there for him, and I have learned to not expect any changes in his behavior. It might happen. It might not. Um, I don't care. I love him as he is. I've learned to love him. I've learned so much from him about faith, about courage, about the healing power of the arts, um, about being faithful to something that you believe in. Um, I used to look at him and think, that poor guy, I now look at him and think, he's got something we're all after. He's got passion. He's got love. He's got peace when he's in his music. And that's made it easier. It doesn't mean that it's always easy for me. I'm conflicted every day about what to do. I'm conflicted about things like whether he should be at an event like this because he's always happy to perform and always a little bit nervous about how it's going to go and would always like to play for six or eight hours. And sometimes it's only six or eight minutes. And so I never know what to do. It's an adventure. I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. Um, I'm not trying to fix him. I'm just uh, privileged and honored to be his friend. Thank you, Steve. So, Ted, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what the foundation is trying to do. You're involved in trying to uh, to, to develop and, and bring to scale some very innovative approaches. Um, it would be great to hear about them. Yeah, we're very excited about it. Um, we've spent the last year uh, developing uh, a concept uh, and an initiative that uh, we're calling Nathaniel's Place. And what we plan to accomplish with Nathaniel's Place is to give artists that suffer with mental illness um, the opportunity to continue to stay connected, um, to share their gifts uh, with the world through being able to interact with artists who are also uh, mentors for them. Um, another aspect of uh, Nathaniel's Place, let me make sure I don't forget anything, I'm sorry, um, is to provide um, um, early recognition and interventions for persons when they uh, begin to show the signs of mental illness. Um, it's so important, as you all know, to intervene as early as possible to give those people the opportunity to be able to um, not get caught up in the throes of mental illness. And I guess, as you can tell, I'm a lay person, but, you know, very 
uh, motivated by, um, you know, being able to work with people like Alex, like Ron, um, like Steve, and to share his passion, which is a big part of where my passion comes from, is having had the opportunity over the last few years to spend time with Steve. You know, I've heard the story many, many, many times, and each time I'm just as excited as everyone else here uh, is to hear it because it's so genuine and it's so true, and as Steve said, he lives it. Um, another initiative uh, uh, for us with uh, Nathaniel's Place um, is to allow people uh, with challenges to maintain a, um, a social connection through artistic expression. Uh, ben Phillips is here uh, from uh, Mercy Housing. Uh, Mercy is probably the preeminent com uh, organization in the country um, that provides housing for underprivileged families and gives them uh, a continuous source of hope uh, to be able to reintegrate into society. Uh, we're partnering with them to house Nathaniel's Place at their facilities. Um, we're going to allow uh, or have the provision for their residents to participate in the programming. Um, we're not questioning whether or not they have a mental illness, but if it presents itself, then you know we'll be able to early to intervene uh, as early as we possibly can to give them their best hope. And it'll also be the place where uh, mentors can mentee uh, or men mentors can mentor to uh, the artists that have uh, mental challenges that are looking to uh, stay connected to society. So uh, we're really excited about it. On the other hand, I have the wonderful pleasure of working with Dr. David Satcher in Atlanta um, on a project, and it's, it, it's very innovative for, for our city, um, but where uh, when people come into uh, the emergency rooms in hospitals, um, they are screened for potential mental challenges before they get put into the system and that sort of thing. And that's a really exciting program to, you know, really short circuit in a lot of ways. People that need to be treated for mental illness getting that treatment as opposed to being, you know, shuffled off to jail and that sort of thing. So uh, we're very excited about it and, um, you know, looking forward to uh, continuing to move forward with our partnership with Mercy and with, with you all. So, so I want to make sure that before we get the signal to turn to, to your questions, um, that, that, that we get to, to one topic that I think is, is, is really important, especially uh, right now. I, I've known Ron for years, and, and Ron often talks about stigma as being um, one of the biggest challenges that, uh, um, that people face in trying to, um, to achieve meaningful Lives. And this issue of stigma really becomes um, paramount as we witness the aftermath of the tragedy in Tucson and end up listening to um, all of these uh, stereotypes about the connection between violence and, and serious mental illness, this, this, this sense that, that seriously mentally ill individuals are inherently violent. Ron, I wonder maybe if you could start us off and just talk a little bit about what you think uh, these kinds, uh, how these events um, affect the, 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 the chances of people being able to be accepted and included. Well, first of all, studies show that basically, uh, and it's not just I who feel uh, that stigma, and that's a euphemism for uh, prejudice and discrimination that 
um, negatively affects us. The Surgeon General of the United States in the famous 1999 reports that it's the major obstacle to mental health in this country, not just because it may keep people from seeking treatment, but because it makes people's lives miserable. It makes them, people won't employ you. Um, I can tell you somebody who's going out on a, on a dating service, they tell somebody after the third date, even though it's going very nicely, that I have a bipolar condition. They say, I can't go with you because you might kill me. Um, if you want to go out dancing, you know, if you say, hello, my name's Joe. Uh, I've been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Would you like to go out for dinner and dancing? They often don't say that because what is key is that being diagnosed is not just an actual or imputed clinical condition. It's a social status. It makes you a pariah. Now, as I said, that studies show that basically people are no more dangerous than the general population. Um, if there's any correlation, it's a minuscule amount of the violence is created in the United States. When they take one incident, and as Paul said, 6% of the population could be considered to have serious mental illness. Now, if you take, we have 300 million people and there's more, that's 18 million. It's almost like there's the conspiracy of, uh, and three million could be diagnosed with schizophrenia, about 1%. Like that, we go, God, we're really disappointed there's not enough Congress people for us to shoot this week. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's three million of us and there's only 435 Congress people. Now, these types of stereotypes, including it, the odds, according to a meta-analysis in the October 2010 edition of Schizophrenia Bulletin is 14.3 million to one that you'll be killed by somebody who has a stranger with psychosis. Let me also put this into perspective. When people say, now we have to go and involuntarily commit all these people, um, Arizona had one of the broadest commitment standards ever. And people, you know, everybody's great about predicting after something's already happened. You know, and they say, well, it's weird, but what about, I'm sure you've all heard about this, what about the man who kills his entire family? And they say, you know, he was such a quiet man. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe it. So I believe in broadening the commitment standards to including all the quiet men because <laughs> you never know when they're going to attack. And, and when you, and when Steve says, like, okay, I don't want to increase stigma because it's only a small amount. Well, first of all, the American Psychiatric Association, the Tarasoff decision, agree that they cannot predict dangerousness. So you have a lot of false positives. The other thing is, and this is very important, it affects people. I know someone who had, for lack of uh, breakdown, she was an attorney. She wants to go to college again and study something else, and she says, I will not go to college because now they're going to start scrutinizing all of us at college more. And lastly, let me just say about involuntary commitment. It's not just the study that I did, the well-being project. The fear of involuntary commitment keeps people from seeking treatment. If you're depressed, you might say, I'd like to go in, but what if they decide to commit me? You know, and so you have to watch about our human rights should not end where our psychiatric diagnosis begins. We are not to be the scapegoats of society. There's other profoundly other variables, such as 
male, we should start committing a lot of young men. Those are the ones that, who have uh, a prior history of violence or whatever. There's a lot of other variables that are more uh, strongly correlated. But, you know, we have to get beyond stereotypes just like we have to get them beyond whether it's based on race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and other types of stereotypes. This devastates people's lives. It devastates because no matter how good your treatment is, you go outside and people won't employ you, they don't want to be around you, according to social distance studies, then what type of life are you going to have? I think we're going to let Ron have the last word and turn things over to you so that you have the opportunity to ask questions of the panel panelists that you might have. I understand you have a new book out, Steve. If you do, could you talk about it a little? Um, thank you, Alyssa, for that plug. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great gift for any and all occasions. <laughs> it's... Uh, um, it is uh, a collection of columns that uh, has just come out, 10 years, writing columns for the LA Times. And um, I, I, when I, um, it's called Dreams and Schemes, um, my 10 years of fun in the sun. Um, and it has been fun, <laughs> and there's material everywhere. And um, I would say, though, that I, in 37 or 8 years of writing uh, newspaper stories and columns, um, I, um, I've been struck since I met Nathaniel about how interested people have been in that story. And I, I'm, I've written thousands of stories. I've sent back dispatches from Iraq and from Bosnia and gone to volcanoes and floods and Hurricane Katrina. And, um, you know, when I wrote that first column about Mr. Ayers, um, in the time it took to read one email, there'd be ten more. Um, and there are several columns in that book for anybody who's interested in seeing those again. But um, I thought, well, what is that? What is it about this? I mean, when I, I even had doubts when I wrote that first column. Is anybody going to be interested in this, this guy who's kind of down and out? And I think that there were a couple of things going on. We all, uh, so many of us do have a connection to somebody who's dealing with a mental illness. Um, and I think that we, uh, we like second chances. We like stories of second chances. And um, people were rooting for him from the beginning and rooting for me to, um, I think, find ways to help him. And I think that we all have that goodness in us and what keeps us from acting on it in the case of people we see on the streets who we suspect might be dealing with a mental condition is just fear and ignorance. And I realized that early on and was uh, spurred on by mental health professionals who asked me, begged me on occasion to please keep writing about this. The, what you're doing, they said, is uh, humanizing not just Mr. Ayers, but thousands like him. And in the process, perhaps beginning to destigmatize mental illness. And I, I, I realized that uh, that because of my friendship with Mr. Ayers and because of what I was learning from professionals, was uh, both a privilege and a duty. And um, so all of these years later, I'm still writing about it when I, when I have a new angle on it. Um, and they are among the most uh, rewarding, uh, the most rewarding columns that I've written. And um, I hear virtually every day from somebody who has read the book 
the soloist or seen the movie. And um, each step of the way, the first column, we talked about whether we should even run it because we don't, you don't usually see stories in, in the newspaper about somebody dealing with a mental illness and, and um, their name is not used. And we thought about, well, maybe we shouldn't do it. And I said, well, maybe we're part of the problem. Why can't we tell a story? I'm not saying this is a story about a, a mentally ill guy. I'm saying this is a story about um, somebody's brother, somebody's son. This is a story about an accomplished man, a soul, a poet, a musician who had an unlucky break and is out here fighting every day to get back on track. And that's a powerful narrative. And if you tell a human story and then along the way um, you know, offer up the details of how he got there, then maybe you can begin to humanize the Nathaniels of the world. So I'm, I'm proud to have six or eight of those columns in that book. We have a question here on your right. Hi. Um, first, I want to identify myself as someone who has received mental health services, and I've been in recovery for 20 years or better. Um, and the reason why I think it's important to point that out is because Ron has pretty much touched what for me has always been a sore spot, which is the issue of stigma. I think that the media is probably one of the biggest proponents of stigma. When there are high-profile, bizarre incidents, the media pounces on it to make that connection between people labeled mentally ill and violence. Yet, in fact, the studies that I've read actually indicate that people labeled mentally ill are 11 times more likely to be the victims of violent crimes versus the perpetrators of violent crimes. With that in mind, I wonder if Steve could share, or anyone on the panel, why the media makes this link between people labeled mentally ill and violence when there are, in fact, no statistics that validate that link. Um, you know, at one time, they used to link Latinos with being drug addicts, African-Americans with being thieves, gay people with be being pedophiles. Now, people labeled mentally ill are linked with being violent. Can Steve address that? Why is the media pounce on issues. Why does the media pounce on issues like the Tucson incident to make this I, link? I appreciate I appreciate that question. And you have a you have a right to be upset. And um you know when I um actually I was a little bit um when we had this shooting in Tucson um all of the talk it wasn't about mental illness initially. It was about politics. It was about, okay, is this what happens when you have a Tea Party movement? Um, and I actually uh, wanted and wrote columns saying, I want to talk about mental illness. I don't want to talk about uh, polarization and the political divide. But I think the media, sir, are responsible um, in large measure for the, the very stigma that uh, you're talking about. Um, you know, portrayals have not been very accurate, very educational, very informative. Um, I have tried since I began on this journey to address that 
and I haven't been perfect in that. I haven't always made the right decisions. I'm learning as I go. Um, you know, I'm again, I'm, I'm no researcher and I'm no expert, um, and so I'm reluctant to take issue with what's being said here, but I think that, um, um, that I've, I've read studies that suggest that um, those who have a serious mental illness who go completely untreated might in fact be some small percentage of them more prone to violence than those who have a serious mental illness but are getting treatment. So I think what I attempted to, to do in the column I wrote about Tucson was to say, um, across this country, we are seeing mental health services diminished. Um, it is a broken down system. You've got to fight for coverage through your um, insurance company. Um, you know, Ron and I were having a discussion earlier tonight about what's going to get chopped now. Um, I'm meeting with uh, Daryl Steinberg this week to talk about what he hopes to be able to save in the budget. So across the country, we're seeing services diminish. And I think that's a bigger story um, than, you know, what percentage of people with a mental illness might commit a crime. It's tiny, 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 tiny. And the conversation to have is, um, as we're learning more about mental illness, um, how can we continue to cut back on the services that so many people need? How can you, in this country, shut down mental hospitals never follow through on the promise of community clinics and help, and then wonder why Skid Row exists or uh, Palisades Park exists. Um, how can you send people off to battle in Iraq and Afghanistan, have them come home and say, well, we better not diagnose them with PTSD or TBI because that's expensive to treat. Where do you think they're going to end up? How can you have a country in which a couple thousand vets sleep on the streets in Santa Monica and there are abandoned medical buildings at the VA hospital. I mean, how does this exist? I think those are the kinds of stories that the media ought to be doing and that I've tried to do, and we ought to do less of the kind of generalized, um, you know, misinformed um, stigmatization that this gentleman is talking about. I appreciate the question. Can I just... Um, I've done a few of those, um, but you mean it as relates to Tucson? Yeah, I did a column that I that I thought did that. Some of my critics said that in attempting to address the issue of stigma, I might only have made it worse. I, I, apo I, don't think, I apologize I don't, if that happened. I don't think you quoted anybody from the client movement. Let me just say this about why the movie, which actually didn't totally follow the book, is it has uh, Nathaniel attacking you, which he never did. And some people, that's a dramatic, you know, uh, freedom of what it is. It sort of like says, you be a friend to somebody with schizophrenia, they'll try to strangle you to death. And that is not something that's acceptable. It's like doing something around Jaime Escalante, with Stand and Deliver, who was the, you know, advanced placement math, and let's throw in a gratuitous drive-by shooting because it deals with Latinos. This type of thing is unacceptable, and we need to be quoted, not other people, because we can speak for ourselves. And I, I don't want you also to get the wrong idea. I have nothing against normal people. <laughs> Just because they started World War I, World War II, dropped the atomic bomb in Hiroshima, 
and Nagasaki committed genocide against the Native Americans and instituted slavery. I have nothing against normal people, but I wouldn't want my daughter to marry one. <laughs> just, can I respond to that? You want my daughter to can marry I? one? No, I don't <laughs> I just want to respond I quickly. I really I love Rudd, and I appreciate the uh, criticism and the, uh, the sensibility. Um, the, and he's right about the movie. Um, Mr. Ayers did not attack me, and it was not... And even uh, the hitting, you said you were going to talk about that he hit you, which he didn't do because you were trying to figure out. I know good, well, intentionally, that unless you said he hit you, he may not be for get treatment. Correct? Yeah, no, it was not a it was not a feature of the movie that I um, was down with. Um, you do give up some control. It's a leap of faith, and um, I disagreed, and I lost that point. But I will say, however, I think that anybody who reads the book, reads the columns, or sees the movie, um, gets many positive images about friendship, about looking past generalizations and stereotypes, about taking the risk of becoming somebody's friend and learning that uh, it's a two-way street, that it's not just me helping him. He's helped me in many ways um, be a better person. And I think that uh, um, although not everything in, the, in, in each of those columns or in the book or in the movie has been perfect, the attempt from the beginning has been to... Um, to address stigma and to humanize the Nathaniels of the world. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.